Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hello, and welcome to this EM360 podcast. I'm Richard Steenan, Chief Research Analyst at IT Harvest. I write books on IT security, work with IT security technology providers on their go-to-market, and I'm a trusted advisor to investment firms around the world. IT Harvest is an industry analyst firm that covers over 3,500 vendors in the cybersecurity industry. Today, I'm joined by Megan McCluskey, who is Associate General Counsel at TrustArk, and we're here to talk about the evolution of privacy laws. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thank you for having me. As you said, I'm Megan McCluskey, Associate General Counsel for Research at TrustArk, and I've been part of TrustArk and Nimity's content team for over 15 years. Uh, I lead a team of privacy experts who distill privacy guidance and laws into understandable requirements for business. Wow, we're talking to the right person um, because I think even in the traditional world of IT security, privacy is is being felt and compliance with privacy laws is being felt dramatically. Um, how did we get to where we are today, right? Because this is, you know, at least over the last 10 years, an evolution in compliance regimes. Sure. You know, the primordial ooze from which privacy laws were born uh, varies depending on the region. You know, in Europe, privacy really flourished after the Second World War and was recognized as a human right. So kind of laws evolved from a human rights perspective and eventually culminated with the European General Data Protection Regulation or the GDPR as it's well known. In North America, you have privacy evolving as a form of consumer protection. So how can we support innovation and commercial interests in a way that's mindful of consumer choice? And then you contrast that um, with some places in Asia, like Russia and China, and you're looking at privacy as a way of kind of legitimizing censorship or data sovereignty um, to support the regimes in those countries. So it really depends on where you're starting from uh, to, to how we got to where we are today. And and it's the story's not over, right? We're going to have more privacy regulations and legislation, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, the GDPR kind of set the bar globally for data protection laws. Um, a lot of these laws, despite their kind of unique and distinct origins, they share many of the same underlying principles. The data privacy principles tend to be fairly standard across the board, you know, um, focusing on making sure you have a reason, a purpose for why you're collecting data, making sure you're only collecting data that's necessary for the purpose for which you're collecting it. Um, don't store the data for longer than you need it. Make sure it's kept up to date and accurate. Make sure you're securing it. All of those hallmarks are fairly standard across the field. And as new laws are implemented, you know, we've got um, in India looking at uh, law, Pakistan, a lot of areas in Asia and Africa these days, they're really following the GDPR as a model because in order to facilitate commerce between Europe and those regions, they need to be recognized as an adequate jurisdiction from a data protection standpoint. And so you'll see a lot of the newer laws following the GDPR as a model for, for how to protect data going forward. How should an organization think about, you know, where they fit in all these compliance regimes? I'm reminded of the uh, data retention laws that, you know, are much older than privacy laws uh, and banks in particular had to comply with retention laws in every single region that they did business. 
And they ended up with a massive burden because some laws required three years retention and some seven years and some forever. And it just got to be overwhelming. How do you even approach that, you know, if you're doing business globally? Sure. It can, it can be a challenge. Um, I'd say retention is, is a bigger challenge than privacy because retention requirements, as you point out, in the banking sector, in the healthcare sector, they vary depending on the sector, depending on the record type, and they get really into the nitty gritty. You know, is this a tax related record? Is this an HR record? And uh, have, to your point, you know, different requirements, seven years, 10 years, depending on the record. So it's a lot more narrow and a lot more specific in the requirements. Privacy, because of the nature of how companies use information, it tends to be a bit higher principle oriented um, guidance and, and direction under the laws. You know, we have to understand how you're using data and what's kind of that process between my touch points with individuals and what I'm eventually doing with the data and where it's going, who am I disclosing it to. So it tends to be much more high level. But every organization at the end of the day should be concerned about privacy and data protection laws because every organization touches personal data in some way. You know, they have employees, they have customers, they're doing something with personal data at some point. And how concerned you have to be really comes down to risk and risk tolerance. So the more sensitive the data you're collecting, the more you need to do to protect it and make sure you're using it properly. Um, in terms of determining what to comply with, you know, each law has its own criteria for applicability. I'd say given that many laws these days have what's called an extraterritorial uh, reach, you know, they apply regardless of whether you're operate, like whether you're a company based in that country or not. Um, I'd say a good rule of thumb would be to look at, first of all, where are you headquartered? Comply with those laws. Um, where are you collecting personal data from? So where are your consumers? Where are your employees? Comply with those laws. And then also what markets markets are you targeting? So if you're trying to get into a new market, uh, you should go and take a look at uh, what's the state of the law in that country, in that jurisdiction. When you talk about the risks, one of the, I guess, more palatable, or not palatable, but perceivable ones is the risk of fines. Um, what are those like? And, you know, are, are they going to be universally applied, you know, even if I'm not Google or Apple? <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the risk of fines is um, is high. And, you know, if you look at the GDPR as the bar, um, that really kind of increased the worry about fines because it set the fines as the higher of either 20 million euros or 4% of the worldwide annual turnover for the preceding financial year. So that's, that's quite hefty. If you're Google or Facebook, those are very large fines. Now, that said, um, most regulators take a balanced approach. They don't tend to head right to that 4% um, or 20 million off the bat. They look at, you know, what have you done to try and comply? You know, have you made good faith efforts to try and put something in place? Is this a first offense or are you a repeat offender that plays into uh, it? Um, they don't have an, they don't want to put companies out of business. So they don't want to fine you for more than you can afford. So they do look at kind of the state of the health of the business as one of those factors that they consider. I'd say, you know, while the risk of fines is, is large, um, it also depends on where you're operating. Some countries are very slap happy with fines. 
but they're very low. So, you know, if you're looking at Spain, Spain issues a ton of fines because that's how the DPA gets its budget. So they issue, you know, 5,000 euros here, 30,000 euros there. They don't tend to be very high fines, but they tend to be fairly frequently coming. Yeah, compared to other jurisdictions that um, are fewer for fines, but much heavier. So your France, uh, your Germany, those fines tend to be very large, you know, in the millions of euros, but they don't fine as frequently. Um, the, the bigger risk is not just the monetary penalties, but you, one, you've got reputational risk. If you have a data breach, your customers are going to lose trust. And second is the administrative sanctions that can be issued. So regulators can order you to have to delete all of your personal data. They can order you to have to stop processing that personal data. So whatever you are doing with it, stop. And then in the United States, the FTC has started using its newest power, which is called uh, algorithmic disgorgement. So if you are using AI to do whatever, um, you may be ordered to destroy your algorithms and training data sets. And th those types of fines and those types of penalties can really put a business under. They can, they can knock a business out. Wow. Is there a concept of, uh, I guess, overhang? So somebody's listening to us talk and they go, wow, you know, we, we, we're going to stop collecting whatever <clears throat> today. Uh, if they've been in business with a lot of data subjects in Europe for years, do they still have to worry about a regulator coming at them or, or a consumer saying, hey, you collected this data from me, you know, disgorge it, show us what you've done with it, and we're going to fine you for doing something before you took corrective action. Yes, uh, you know, you can get fined for activities even after you've ceased them, um, if you did violate the law. I think the remedies that you've taken to um, mitigate any risks will play into the amount of that fine. So as I mentioned before, you know, the regulators try to take a balanced approach to issuing fines. And I think that if you have taken active steps and you say, look, yes, we did collect that and we did use it improperly, but we don't do that anymore. The regulator, you know, sometimes in those cases, they'll just say, all right, well, you know, it's done now. You don't hold that data anymore. No fine is going to be issued um, or a minimal fine is going to be issued. So it does play into um, kind of how how you're enforced against now. You know, I would caution you if you have taken steps to stop processing data because you thought, you know what, maybe that's a little more risky than than I than I thought, and I don't actually want that risk. I would make sure that you actually take the steps to delete that personal data out of your database if you're not using it anymore, because that is in itself a violation if you hold data for longer than you need for the purpose for what you're processing it for. So. Yep. And then you know how executives think, and so they're, they've got a risk model in their heads, and they're going, okay, the risk is, let's say I'm a $100 billion a year revenue company, I do a million a year from consumers in France, um, but I don't have an office there. Basically, if, if, if France tried to find me, I could just cease doing business in France and say, forget it. You know, we're not going to pay you $4 million. We're just going to do without the million in revenue we get from those customers. You know, yeah. that risk balance equation is, can you get away with that? Or will they eventually 
figure out a way to get to you. I, um, can you get away with that? It, Has anybody gotten away with that? Well, I'd say let's watch what happens with Meta and Threads because Meta's, um, you know, a, a frequent, a frequent company of interest to the European regulators, and they're they're intentionally not making Threads available in Europe because they, I'm sure they, they're aware that there are compliance risks there. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens because on the one hand, you, you don't want the risk of fines, but on the other hand, you don't want to give up a market um, unless you can afford it, like maybe Facebook Meta can. So I think it'll be, it's, it's a balance, you know, is, it, is the risk worth the reward? And I think in Meta's case, probably you know they do get they do get hit every time they start something new in europe so it might uh it might be worth it but i think you're also going to run the risk of the public outcry saying well we really want your products we really want to be able to access this and it's not fair that we're not allowed to because of where i live yeah remember when gdpr passed or went into effect there were you know a handful anyways of organizations that just started blocking access from Europe. Uh, a, a newspaper in Chicago did that for a short time. Um, I don't know. I don't, I think they eventually all just complied and are, are doing it now, but yeah, I, I, it, I, I can, a startup startup is not going to be able to comply other than, you know, just following best practices. I agree. Um, if you follow best practices, you should be on good track for compliance. Um, and if you are just starting, you know, to build privacy in from from the beginning is easier than trying to bolt it on after the fact. And a lot easier than building security in because privacy you've got control over. Well, I think I think some companies would disagree whether they have control Someone. over privacy. Could <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so? What are some of the other downsides of? of privacy law compliance, right? That would be in your equation of whether or not to go down that path. Well, achieving privacy, if done well and aligned with the business, it should be relatively painless. But that said, there are some common areas where privacy compliance can cause friction or challenges. So for instance, you know, friction on websites. We've all seen cookie banners. Some are implemented well, some are not so well implemented. And they can make navigating a website very challenging. Additionally, individual requests. So under privacy laws, individuals have a series of rights available to them. You know, that you can write, ask to access your personal data. You can ask to correct your personal data. If you don't like what they're doing with it, you might be able to ask them to uh, restrict how they're using their personal data, or you can object to how it's being used or ask them to delete it. So those types of rights, um, when they're exercised, if there's many communication channels or if you are sharing or disclosing the personal data downstream to third parties, they can be challenging to execute because you need to go to each third party who got a copy of the personal data and say, you know, you need to do this with it. Either I need a copy of it or I need it deleted or I need it corrected. And that can be challenging if you work with a lot of third parties. Finally, um, one of the requirements under newer data protection laws are called records of processing. So I need a record of every single uh, 
process that I do with personal data. All of my systems that host personal data, be them IT systems, HR systems, whatever, I need to make a record of, you know, what am I doing with the data? What types of data? Whose data? Where is it? Where's it going to? How am I securing it? I need to maintain um, records of these things. And that can be challenging to keep up to date if the privacy office is operating in a silo from the rest of the business, because they may not have good enough insight into what the business is doing or where the business um, is changing to know all of the different systems and things that are being done with personal data. Because, you know, your business partners, they may not understand what personal data is. You know, I've been in a number of conversations where all of a sudden someone says, well, I don't have any personal data in my systems, you know, and then later they say, well, yeah, you know, I see the IP address of the person who's visiting the website and I've collected this and that. And all of a sudden you say, well, that's personal data. You know, this idea of that it's not personal data just because it's a series of numbers. If you can identify who that individual is and what they're doing on your system and, and across the website or across other websites, if you're tracking them, that becomes identifiable and, and you need to be mindful of that and, and keep your privacy office up to date. Is there an internal, um, the way that I read GDPR, it seems like the DPO, data protection officer in a European organization or somebody does business there has kind of a dotted line to the data protection authority. So is there a tendency to build a firewall between the organization and the DPO so that it's, they you know, basically try and keep them in the dark? <laughs> there, I could see the temptation to do that um, because yeah, you're correct. The DPO does act as the point of contact with the regulator, but the requirements under GDPR and data protection laws is that the DPO needs to be involved in every, every business decision making uh, decisions around personal data. So if they are involved in you know, some new venture, you have to keep them abreast of you know, what types of personal data are, is going to be used, how it's going to be used. They need to be involved and consulted on the privacy impact assessment. And they don't have ultimate say over the, the business decision. They actually need to be removed from the decision makers, but they have to be abreast of the information and, and able to provide guidance and an opinion on it. And if you try and firewall them, that's going to be a violation in itself. Um, so you definitely want to keep them involved and the degree of involvement should be enough so that they can provide an informed opinion. You should see them as a partner rather than the enemy. Right. So I think we've established that you're an expert on all of this. How, how does TrustArc help its clients to even begin a privacy compliance program? Sure. TrustArc is a, a holistic platform for achieving privacy compliance. Now, the Nimity Research Tool, which uh, I manage, it allows organizations to understand their compliance obligations. You can compare requirements across jurisdictions, and you can access operational templates to help build your privacy program out. And then once you're ready to operationalize your program, TrustArc also offers tools to help manage cookies, ads, consent preferences, conduct PIAs and readiness assessments, and create records of processing and managing privacy risks. So one-stop shop. What about for actual, you know, legal procedures? Do you have a legal team that people can go to, or do you recommend one? We we do not provide legal advice. Uh, we are a software company, 
So we provide legal information, but not legal advice. We can't um, actually advise you on the law, but we do have an internal team of consultants and can provide managed services. So if you want to uh, leverage privacy expertise, you can use our consulting arm to help you uh, implement any of our, our tools or any of our guidance. Got it. I, do you have law firms that come to you to help their clients? Oh, yeah. Yes, we have law firms who are clients who uh, use our tools to keep up on the latest research, the latest um, legal requirements. You know, what are the new bills, the new amendments coming down the pipes so that they can properly advise their clients? Got it. Well, thank you so much, Megan. This has been great. I appreciate you coming on. Also, thank you to everyone who listening, who's been listening. We hope you took a lot away from today's podcast. For further information on the entire world of, of privacy regulations and compliance, um, head on over to trustarc.com, trustarc.com. We'll be back next week with another episode in our podcast series. Until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast on all major platforms. Follow the conversation on our socials at EM360Tech on Twitter and LinkedIn. And for more great daily content, head on over to EM360Tech.com.